Oliver Chapman, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and we will get into a little bit more of kind of what we chatted off on air. But um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of kind of chat to you and kind of get a little bit into your head and kind of find out a little bit more about yourself. And, you know, if I'd gone back in time, say to like 11, 12 year old Oliver Chapman and said to him, just to let you know, in a few years time, you'll be running a company that's, you know, kind of ranked the, the fastest growing in the UK and one of the fastest in Europe overall. Your reaction to that would be quite surprised <laughs> quite surprised and I'm, I'm quite intrigued you know people are very intrigued in the kind of entrepreneurial age you know or, or kind of mindset and we'll get into kind of OCI and what you've built so far but you know kind of from a young age was entrepreneurship something that you were interested in did you ever think you were going to start your own business just just give us a little bit of a, of a look into your mindset well yeah actually that that is an interesting question so I think I had my first business idea when I got and my family bought our first computer, which is a Windows 98. And when I got that computer, um, I was I was 10, I think, maybe 11. And I remember getting some marketing material through a door and uh, it was all last year's games, Britannia um, Encyclopedia. <clears throat> It was all sorts of these old school um, CD-ROMs being marketed. And I, and I said to my mum, I said, hey, this is fantastic. You could buy an old football game from last season. And I can't get my hands on that football game because I'm just a little kid. So what I wanted to do, and I made this proposal to my family, I said, we've now got this fantastic bit of kit, technology. And we've got a printer. And I've got a source of material. So what I'm going to do, mum, is that I'm going to collate all this material and I'm going to get on my bike and I'm going to start posting flyers with clip art, you know, of these, uh, of these um, programs through, through our neighbor's doors. And I'm going to make a small markup and I'm going to run this little business. And mum said, no, you're not. Why, mum? That's what I want to do. I'm saving up for a PlayStation. <laughs> and, um, and she said, Oliver, you're a kid. What about warranties? What if there's problems? What if there's like supply issues or you can't get the products that you've sold? How, how is a buyer going to call your hotline and, um, and, and then realize that they're dealing with a child <laughs> when they're looking to make their purchase? And that has to be my first business idea. And it was kiboshed. And maybe we'll come back to that sort of thing at a later stage. Um, people saying no to business ideas and people saying, oh, I don't think it'll work. I wouldn't go down that route. It's too high risk, all that sort of stuff. So I guess when I look back, I realized that maybe that entrepreneurial blood was kind of always there. But at the time, it was always just about earning a few pennies, doing something creative, innovative, and doing something a bit different. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, it wasn't the worst thing to kind of get you thinking about the problems or potential problems that you may have in business. So, I mean, it's it's all part of the, the puzzle that is you now, right? So, you know, again, kind of diving into that puzzle a little bit more, give us a little bit of a, a kind of, you know, kind of snapshot history of kind of yourself and business. When was the first business that you set up all the way to, to kind of setting up OCI as we discussed? Yeah, I mean, I was... Sometimes, it depends which market and audience I'm speaking to, sometimes I'm embarrassed to say, and sometimes I'm proud. So I often, the, the bank often say to me, Oliver, um, which bank were you at before? How do you know about this business? Or which logistical company did you work for? I said, well, I, I, I didn't. 
And they said, well, how do you know about this, this industry of trade? And when I look back at 15 years old, I was selling products um, around my school. I remember um, electronics, some female hair straighteners came out. They were very expensive. They're like 250 quid. And I thought, well, that, that's a lot. And not everyone can afford those. And so I found a, a supplier in China who would um, manufacture a product to a very similar specification, but they'd sell them for 35 quid. And so I imported a load of them. And I sold them around school for about 50 pounds. And that was a great deal. And lots of people were very interested in that. And I, I sold a lot of these products, even to boys, which was quite interesting. And I was always interested in looking at um, different ways to, um, I guess, just top up my spends. And this continued. And through school, I was importing anything from electronics to, um, to some cosmetics and and when I left school, I actually um, got involved in a business which was importing fragrances and cosmetics from the USA that were becoming quite hot on the street over in, um, in, in, U in the UK. And I remember one particular brand was MAC Makeup. Now, you could only get MAC Makeup in the center of Manchester and a couple of stores in London. There wasn't the infrastructure that the brand has now. And so I did a deal with a company over in the US and said, I think there's a really good market for this product, but it's hard to get. And so I ended up importing these products and I was selling them online, quite basic stuff, nothing too fancy, selling it around university, the school campus as well. And actually I, I, I was running this show and, and, and it, it grew, it grew to a decent size. Now I'm not saying I came out of university with you know hundreds of thousands or millions in the bank, but I came out with a very, you know, modest but um, reasonable amount of profit at the end of it. After uni, I was focused immensely on sustainable and recyclable uh, products. And I soon realized that there was an, a big opportunity looming. It was sort of getting back that 10, 15 years when recycling was really kicking off. And I, I got involved in importing actually uh, tires I realized that tires were being abandoned in the UK. They were, you could pay tax to bury them in the ground. Some people were burning them or, or, or leaving them in warehouses. And I thought there's a real problem for that. You know, there's a real, there's something that needs solving. There's one tire for every person in the UK, which is discarded every year. And, and so what I did was I, I, I scoured the internet using the equivalent of the technology we had there. And I found a company in India that was able to turn tires back into oil. And so we did a joint venture where my organization, which was just pre-OCI, although OCI absorbed the company, um, was actually able to work with this Indian company. We worked on getting the right regulations in place to make exports. And we created a new market of exporting end-of-life rubber which was destined for burning or filling in the, in, in the ground. And we were able to turn it back into oil, which is obviously like an incredibly, um, I, need, I don't need to sell that. I mean, you know, go in the ground or become oil. And it's a low quality oil that would be used in furnaces and powering and um, heating systems and stuff. But nonetheless, we, we made a great market. And, um, and I think by the age of 21, 22, I was exporting 200 containers a week, which was, well, actually an awful lot to handle at that age and, and very stressful uh, dealing in India and South Korea and Pakistan eventually. 
But the business evolved again, more sustainability, more focus on recycling and things. And we got into alternative fuels, which I saw as the future. But that, that, that was really the kickstart of OCI. And, um, and OCI has changed an awful lot since then. You know, now we're more focused on, well, we're supply chain. So we're more focused on supply chain. But it's, it's really using that core trading understanding that I built up during my sort of youth, youthful years that I've now implemented into the business today. And, and that's what makes OCI what it is. Yeah, no, it's 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 great to hear that kind of timeline. And I, I do find it incredibly fascinating, you know, people who may not have that same entrepreneurial, you know, frankly, get shit done mindset, which you clearly have, you know, I mean, do, do you almost feel that like you, youth was almost your biggest asset then? Because I mean, you know, a lot of people just go like, you know, when you're older, you think like, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. But sometimes young and dumb is a good thing, isn't it? It's like, well, no, I want to do this. Let's talk to someone. Let's get it done. Is, is that kind of something that, that you, you kind of thought of back then? It's a really interesting point, Josh. Even now, young and dumb, I was having this conversation only this week. I've learned a lot in the last 15 years or so of international trade. And sometimes you're better being a bit ignorant, going with your plan regardless of the consequences. If I knew now how hard it would have been to grow OCI to what it is today, I'm not sure if that would seem so appealing, although no doubt I'd have gone and done it anyway. So, yeah, age was a a funny thing. I mean, so much so when I was traveling into India, Pakistan, Malaysia, Indonesia, um, China, I actually used to lie about my age. And I had to. As a 22-year-old kid, I knew nothing. And and what I'd do is, it it would be like a white lie. And I'd be there, and I'd be having dinner because that's how business is conducted there. I'm barely shaving at this age almost. And um, the question would always come up. So I love that. You know, maybe after a few sakis or a few um, uh, glasses of red wine or whatever. Oliver, how old are you? I'd say, ah, I'm in my high 20s, nearly 30. I'd be 22 and I would never be specific. And that gave them the reassurance that, oh, he's nearly 30. Okay, he knows what he's talking about. But actually at the time, I, I was a young guy. And I remember a, a lady I was doing business with out in the, uh, Italy once. I was buying an awful lot of products from her. And I actually got invited to a house and she said, come on, Ollie, what's the deal? You're clearly a young guy. Like, how old are you to be doing these big deals? I said, I- I'm actually 23. She said, you're 23. She said, I'm in my late 40s. And I've been doing this now 10 years since I, I left my job. She's like, when you're my age, you're going to have so much experience in international trade. I can't even conceive it. I'm still learning now at 40 something. And you're there with not far off, you know, five years experience in this sort of thing. By the time you're 40, you're going to have 20 plus years and uh, that always resonated with me. That was quite a long time ago, that conversation. And, um, you know, I think that age doesn't really matter. And maybe being young and dumb, you can afford to take a few more risks that you wouldn't normally take. No, definitely. And, you know, we, we, we I touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but, you know, OCI 
is listed as the fastest growing company in the UK. I mean, that doesn't you know, happen without a lot of hard graft. So just give us a little bit of an idea of how you kind of scale the company because, you know, it's been going for a few years, but I mean, the, the growth that you are undertaking at the moment is is breathtaking, frankly. So just give us a little bit of an insight into how you've kind of grown that and how the business has kind of changed from, from its inception. Yeah, sure. Yeah, as you said, rightly so, like fastest growing company in the UK, but more significantly, it's actually third fastest in the whole of Europe of which are an awful lot of companies, but we're all UK focused, so first UK sound, sounds great, right? Um, OCI really took off when we changed the model from that core trade mindset. And I was always sat there, and I, I told you I established this new market into, into India for rubber. Really got to me when I'd done so much hard work we had a great run for four or five years and easily the world's largest mover of, of rubber and plastic products at the time. And in time, as the product life cycle takes its turn, like we learn in business studies, competitors started creeping in. That really annoyed me. Like it bothered me. I've made this market. Why should I have competitors? That's not fair, is it? Business isn't fair. So I thought, how can I change the way we do things? How can I mix it up? And I, I, I sort of analyzed trade and what is trade? Trade is dealing with sourcing, dealing with logistics, and then dealing with the financing necessary. I said, okay, well, if that's trade, how can we now add value to the supply chain? Instead of a trader trying to pitch a product, make a, a bigger margin on one particular item that they want to, you know, a, a trader has a mindset and that is to make money. I thought, but there must be another way to do this. And so what we did was I came up with an idea. Instead of being a trader trying to constantly sell something, why not work with my buyers? So if you have this imaginary boardroom and you know, even like this room, I'm sat on one side trying to pitch my portfolio of products to a potential corporate. And they've got a few of other traders that they work with. What if I hypothetically walked around and sat on their side of the desk, said, tell me your problems. Because a as a trader, they're never going to tell me their problems, right? They're never going to say, these are the difficulties that we face in our business because it's a weakness and business is all about that sort of mind games and so on. And so we redesigned trade and supply chain so that we could work with corporates. And what then happened was they told us all their problems. They said, we're buying from this organization. We have these difficulties. We're buying from this organization. The transit times are too long. We're buying from this organization. We can't put the funding together necessary. I said, okay, that's really interesting information. How about OCI work with you as a partner? We'll speak to your suppliers. We'll renegotiate your contracts. We'll use our logistical expertise to bolster your logistical expertise, to help you run your business. Consider this as outsourcing your procurement to a teammate. And nobody's ever outsourced procurement before. We've outsourced accountancy, IT, law, you name it, it's been outsourced. You know. The, the, strategic management consulting, it's all outsourced, but 
I don't know of another company outsourcing procurement. And that's really where OCI came in. And that explains the exponential growth we've had over the past five or six years. And, um, and yeah, and, and it's onwards and upwards. And, and we have more clients than we really know what to do with. And a big part of my time is actually trying to understand how to manage those clients and manage my team internally to make sure that the clients have the right journey through OCI and, and that we're doing the right type of deals that can really add value and benefit to those organizations. But hey, we're all learning and I'm still on that learning curve today. Yeah, no, definitely. And we'll definitely come back to the OCI and kind of the, the growth, especially around the funding and the scaling and skills and all that kind of stuff that you've you've kind of had to, to build the company. But I, I want to just go on a little bit of a tangent because, I mean, you know, you've, you've already spoken about being a pioneer twice in your life. I mean, there's, you know, there's pioneering, there's disruption that is just completely, you know, again, it kind of comes back to what you're saying about the the, the young and dumb just having the like, you know, the complete mindset to do it. Were, were you ever disruptor, you know, kind of when you were growing up, did you ever look at stuff and be like, that's not how it should be. It should be done this way. Do you think that's, that's kind of part of what you were, you, you kind of experienced when you were growing up? I think my old classmates would probably say I was a bit of a disruptor. <laughs> I always saw things in a slightly different light. I always wanted to know why. Why, why, why? I had a part-time job for a while. And I've always had jobs, actually. I've had loads of jobs, part-time jobs. So, so working hard was something that was like a fun... I think I was counted. I was like, I had over 11, 12 jobs or something, from paper rounds to... I've cleaned pots in kitchens. I've served in restaurants. I've done paper rounds on bikes. I've done, done a lot. And... I always wanted to know why. So if I was ever given an instruction by somebody to do something, I'll do that, but I won't do it without an explanation. The logic has to be clear in my mind. I remember a, this, this is an interesting example. I had a placement year when I was at um, university and I rem the, the company was in some weird, difficult situation. I won't go into too much about it, but there was some cash flow issue, put it that way. And I made a suggestion. Why not put the clients on a retainer? This person's spending all sorts of money with the company and they're not paying the bills on time. They're a great client. Let's put them on a modest retainer. It won't be offensive. It just means you've got some money coming in. I was 19 when I suggested that. And unfortunately, my, my boss was maybe a little old school and said, nah, I don't, I, we, we won't do that. That's not the sort of thing we do at this organization. That's exactly the sort of thing we do at OCI if we had a cash flow issue. And so, yeah, maybe disrupting the process or, or thinking about how things can be done differently has always been on my mind. And I think that's why I, I like to understand the logic behind scenarios. Like, let me understand the full picture. And that might make me stubborn, that might make me a bit annoying in the sense of you could be sitting here saying, we just need to achieve this and this and this. And I'd say, mm, no, but I need to understand why do you need that? How do you need it? When does it need to be delivered? When I understand that information, then we can get creative. And I think that's really, really important. So that's how I would see um, myself as not necessarily disrupting the world, but in my own little way, disrupting the processes that are in place at the moment with organizations I've dealt with before. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And that thinking, I'm sure, comes in very handy when you're going through some challenges and, you know, scaling and, and growing at this, the rate that you are. I'm sure you've come across quite a few. Could you just give us a little bit of a flavor of the kind of struggles and how you've overcome them, uh, especially, you know, with, with the, um, you know, kind of pandemic overshadowing this, this period of time too? I don't really see struggles as struggles. Don't really look at it like that. We were actually just discussing some OCI principles recently. And one of them was uh, regarding hurdles. Hurdles are like the natural way of life. Nothing is straightforward. Even getting the tube home, you miss the damn tube or you miss the bus. Oh my God, I'm going to be late. Ah, oh, stress, stress, stress. Or does that happen one in 10 times? You're going to miss the bus every now and then. Like, who cares? Once in your life, you'll miss a flight. You know, you take 100 flights, maybe you, you, know, you have a 99% hit rate. One time you might miss it. Might be outside of your um, capabilities to, to control that scenario. And so we decided that, you know, in our principles, if, if we see hurdles, we, we, if we jump over them. If we can't jump over them, we run around them. If we can't run around them, we run through them. And that's a mindset. And it's not a, oh, no, I've had a bad day at work. This hasn't, the client said this. It's jeopardized the transaction. It's, okay, cool, no sweat. It's what it is. Now let's think outside the box. Let, let's just get through this. It's not the end of the world. Is my health okay? Is the team well, fit and healthy? Are their families fit enough? Yeah, sure. So why worry about the minutiae things? Think of solutions that can get you through problems. And, and that really is a mantra that I have deep inside me. I, I just, the, the biggest deal in the world would be that, you know, a family member passed. A business complication is a business complication. And it may need dealing with, but it's not something to dwell on and get upset about. And that's really, really important for all young, aspiring and successful business owners to bear in mind. It can get you down if you do that. And we all need to enjoy work. Yeah, no, definitely. And you, you mentioned your team there. And, you know, I'm going to use your own words against you. You're a stubborn person. And, you know, you need to get people around you, especially in a scaling business like yours, that are really, really key and you can really trust. How have you kind of found scaling this business and kind of putting people around you who, frankly, will put up with your stubbornness? How, how, is, how has that experience been for you? Do you find it quite easy to trust people? Is that something that you've kind of had to teach yourself a little bit more? Give us a little bit of an idea about that. So I may be stubborn, but I'm stubborn in certain ways because at the same time as being stubborn, at OCI, we run an ideas meritocracy. And that is the idea that every single member of staff has the right to an opinion from ground up. And the point being, they may have an opinion on a topic. So the most junior associate who deals with handling paperwork and um, more operational tasks will have a far better understanding of that piece of the business than a senior director who isn't handling that paperwork. Now, what you have in a lot of companies is a, a very strict hierarchy. Who is that junior associate to argue against an MD and say, Mr. MD, Mrs. MD, I don't like the decision that you've just made. 
because that's going to make inefficiencies within my job. And so at OCI, we really believe in allowing everyone to elevate themselves, have an opinion, and to make that opinion heard. And, and that, to me, whilst, yeah, I may be stubborn and hell-bent on getting the job done, but we also work in quite a liberal environment like that. Where like, I, I, I really want to understand what my, my you know, junior team think on certain topics. It, it, it matters to me. And it also matters that their voice is heard for their own development too. So when we have our, our meetings at OCI and full team meetings, I'm very particular about allowing the um, more junior members of staff really get involved. And I hope that that provides them with, um, you know, the feeling of, hey, I, I've had an input here. And, um, and so that's how we get around it. So we've got a task that we need to complete, but let's all get hands on deck in order to do it. Great to have experience on board. But hey, just you mentioned before, young and dumb, that young person could be the same person that I was when I was doing my placement year saying, hey, there's cash flows issues in this business. It's becoming a problem. Why don't we think of doing something different? I know we don't do retainers, but maybe it's the time to check it out and see if that would work. And I, I'd like that um, ethos to run throughout OCI. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and you did mention, you know, before about the, the cash flow, which luckily, you know, you, you haven't had a problem with. But, you know, a key thing to scaling a business, especially one as, as uh, fast growing as yours, is is the funding behind it. And just give us a little bit of an idea of, of the kind of funding. Have you had to take on external funding? Is it, you know, mainly a, a self-funded venture? Just give us a little bit of an idea of that. I'm a bit old school. I think a business needs to stack up on its own two feet. I have so many clients who have raised hundreds of billions. I've got clients that I speak to on a regular basis, daily basis, who literally raise like three, four billion dollars. And they are companies that we know and see on the street. And we speak to the CEOs and say, oh boy, you're doing another fundraise. Shouldn't you be getting your business profitable first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're making another acquisition. We're making another sponsorship. We're doing this. We're doing that. Mm. But the principles of business is you must buy something, you should sell it, and you kind of need to make the margin. Now, that goes against the grain. And of course, there are going to be companies like Amazon, like Tesla, so on and so forth. We know all the names. That don't necessarily need to do that. All right, we reinvest in our business. We make a loss, but we reinvest, da, 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 da. But are they the sort of, you know, one in 10,000 examples? My belief is that for the average business owner, and not to say that OCI is an average company either, you don't need to be an average business to be an average, a normal thinking business owner. You may need some seed funding if that's how you feel about things. But if you've got a really good business model and a good business idea, I believe you should be looking at ways to make money out of that. And I think over the past couple of years, we've seen a change. Maybe during COVID, you know, we've seen the WeWork crash. We've seen organizations boom and then bust. And I think that traditional business will make a bit of a comeback because you can make money in your business. You know, if you, if you launch a great product, people want to buy that. You've got your marketing in place. You create this buzz. Consumers have never spent more money on goods. And if you can get your business model structured in a sense where it makes profit, you can sleep at night. 
I've had CEOs of companies that one in mind, you know, it's like five, I have a 550 million with loads. And then what happened? And maybe it becomes quite, maybe at first it's quite easy to sort of just think you can do that. Okay. So yeah, yeah, great. Had a meeting. So it was offering me a hundred mil. Chilled. All right, go and spend it. Oh, now I've got another 200 mil offer. Now we've got a 300 mil and they raise all of these funds. But then the operations of the business becomes very different because that CEO is now answering to their investors. And in, in this particular example, there were nine different shareholders of the company. And most of them were super aggressive American funds. And then what the American funds decided to do, well, well what they do, not decided, they, they look after their own interests. So then what you've got is a, a divided cap stack who aren't looking for the same objectives. One wants to sell their share of the company and get out and make a profit. One wants to grow the company to become super large. One wants to do something else. And then the CEO has all these different uh, voices in their ears and it makes it very, very difficult to make judgment. So I believe in having a company which has got good solid foundations and can make profit. OCI has never raised money from the market. We don't have any intention to. Uh, our, our profits are accumulating year on year. And, um, and I'm quite proud of that. And maybe I'm the odd one out, you know? Maybe people should go on Dragon's Den and try and get 50K and grow a business or whatever, but they'll spend 50K and then they'll need more. And then where are they? If you have a good business model, you can earn your money. Maybe then you go for a bank loan based on the fact that you've made this much profit this year, you'd like to expand your operations and the bank then see it as a good viable business model and they'll advance funds. And it's an awful lot cheaper as well. Yeah, no, definitely. And again, even like hearing you talk about that, you're in such an interesting place as as an organization to almost have case studies, you know, as clients and kind of have this overall view of what's going on. But the other thing that you have a very good overall view on is what's going on globally and domestically too. But, you know, I, I just want to touch on the, on the kind of global economic issues that are going on. Obviously, one of the big things that's been going on for over a year now is the, you know, war in Ukraine. Um, on the ground, what kind of real impact have you seen at OCI um, as far as an effect of this war really, really goes? It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. It's so much bigger than anyone's talking about. Just before I answer the question, one of the unique things about OCI is that we get to see the entire supply chain of global trade. I'm talking about anything you can see in this room or your room has been bought and sold, manufactured. That, and, and it kind of makes up, you know, even if it's a building outside or whatever, the, the, the products are um, created by an organization, purchase and sold. And what's going on in, in, in Ukraine right now is, is, is a real shift. And we get a very, very good insight into what's happening. We cover financing, global trade, we understand political situations in different markets. We understand logistics and supply chain. And we, we, we get to see then the whole map of how the globe, it's not even, it, it's more than the global economy is playing out. So almost how the world's working. And there are a lot of political shifts which I don't believe are being widely reported on. 
does bits and pieces out there, but you've got BRICS, you know, Russia coming together with China, India, South Africa, Brazil, making movements to make trade in RMB. This is much more than a, our Western media playing this as a, um, and I don't mean to get too political about this, but this is sort of me sharing my view on how this is really impacting the world. This isn't harebrained Vladimir Putin just doing some stupid stuff. Although, of course, we think it is. Like, I, I'm absolutely anti the war, but there's a much bigger game in there. And how that's had an impact, I mean, I can give you examples. I mean, that we had a client who was um, working with a... Um, they had warehousing facilities in, in the Ukraine, or really unfortunate for them, actually. Warehousing facilities in the Ukraine, and, of course, warehousing facilities in Russia. <laughs> so due to the sanctions, they had to cancel and, and, and get rid of their Russian um, entity. And then due to the war, they had to get rid of their Ukrainian entity, which kind of left them with no business. You know, we then have the... Um, there's actually a lot of examples of, of things that the Ukraine manufacture. We've had huge spikes in, in commodity prices. We all know that Ukraine's a, a vast exporter of commodities that we previously didn't appreciate um, or, or didn't acknowledge and, and recognize, I should really say. Um, but it's also changed the supply chain. So it's rattled supply chains, this, this war. People are, the organizations are thinking outside the box and um, you know, I, we had a client who has a factory in Poland, um, as well as Switzerland, and they're now making reserve strategies for what happens next. You know, it wasn't that long ago we were sitting in a, in a world where, yeah, there were some wars and other things happening. But this became very close to home. And I think organizations around, certainly Europe, are thinking of all different plans as to how they can bolster and protect their business. And that has a knock-on impact. It has an, an impact on the supply chain. You know, every consumer will notice that prices have gone up dramatically. There's lots of reasons for that. It's not just the war, okay? But pricing has increased. We're not getting products on the shelves in supermarkets like we used to. Um, flights have changed. That could be argued to be post-COVID. But there's been an awful lot of disruption in the world recently. And, um, and I think that th this war in Ukraine will um, obviously further exacerbate that. I think the key takeaway from my opinion on it is that this isn't just some silly thing that Russia's doing right now. And, and, and don't worry, it'll be over in no time and we'll be back to normal. This is a much bigger play and it's not being realized by the Western economies yet. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you, you kind of mentioned a little bit off air that, you know, your, your, your dad was a, was a journalist too. Um, it, does it frustrate you when things aren't being reported on correctly? Do you just, because you've got the perfect view, do you ever just go like, this is ridiculous, like some people should be talking about this more, but no one seems to be talking about it? It's really challenging. You know, dad retired sort of 15 plus years ago, I think, maybe even 20 now, but um, I think it was a very different industry then. He was involved in investigative journalism and used to get involved in cracking some really interesting, cool stories. I think because of the way we take our media now, we want fast articles, we want at our fingertips, we're reading like a third of the, the information on the article. It almost doesn't matter whether the article's correct, it's just, boom, sounds interesting. Quick skim, gone. 
And yeah, I guess I am frustrated on how things are reported. I'm frustrated that um, from just, just from some of the small situations that we see and then I read in the media and I'm thinking, well, this is not the rationale for, um, for this is not a good explanation, shall we say, of what m my opinion is on whatever's happening. I'll try to take it away from politics. Like I don't want to get too involved in politics, but you know, and, and I, I think that, um, and I don't even want to criticize the media. I don't want to say, oh, it's the media's fault. I think the media's become scapegoat. Fake news, fake this, fake that. And yeah, there are articles that are published that, you know, more homework could be done. You know, I was speaking uh, to someone the other day who was saying, I've read an article about this and that, and they've named them, they've got one child with one person and, and, and two childs, sorry, not one child with one person. In one article, it's saying um, person X has got one child. In another article, it says they've got two children. In another article, three children. And he said, why don't they get it right? But we're looking to knock out media really fast. You know, we're looking to push it out, get it on socials, get people to read it, get some clicks, get some advertising based on those clicks. And I think that old school investigative piece, of which there are some um, um, publications who do fantastic jobs of doing that. 100%. We've been involved in breaking some stories for fraudulent situations with, you know, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, love whistleblowing against fraud. Um, and that really gets me going. Like, let, let's call out the people who are up to no good. Um, so it's still there. But unfortunately, there's a lot of clickbait and there's a lot of um, fast press that um, gets published. And uh, that's probably a shame. Yeah, no, definitely. And again, kind of tapping into your, you know, kind of worldview that you have, um, we've chatted to a number of people across our kind of platform in the last month or so that have said some pretty startling things about, you know, kind of the potential investability of the UK. Um, someone in Australia was saying, I wouldn't touch the UK with a barge pole for the next 10 years. Um, someone in, in the UAE who said something similar and, you know, there's a, again, there's inflation. Obviously, we've had the Bank of England um, raise interest rates recently. So, you know, things are looking a little bit scary on a global scale. And obviously, the political side, you know, potentially we could have a new government coming up soon. Um, it, it's, there seems to be a lot in flux. Kind of what do you kind of think of some something like that? Um, you know, obviously, as a UK business, but, you know, kind of really, really strong opinions coming out of other countries as far as, you know, kind of the, the attractiveness of the UK as an investable uh, destination. I think it's rich coming from the UAE. <laughs> I think they've made their position quite clear. I admire an awful lot of what they did during COVID, but there's a lot of games played at the same time. Um, interesting that their property prices are three times, four times up than they were prior to COVID. I could go on about that. <laughs> they, they, they gifted aid to countries all over the world for, for COVID kids. Did the right thing there, lots of charity work. Then made no restrictions and invited everybody to come over to the, the UAE. Just come over here, come party, we'll look after you. No restrictions in an economy which was kind of previously dwindling. Now property prices are way up. Um, and uh, and I think that was one of the smartest moves from running a, a country you could probably make. What's my opinion on um, the UK economic situation and where it's an investable country? 
I wish the UK. The UK is a very bureaucratic country, unfortunately. And it's also anti industry, which leaves itself only open for financial services and other stuff, some fintechs. But let's not really compare. I'm a massive patriot, but let's not really compare UK fintechs to the US, shall we? Um, I think that the UK has an awful lot to offer. I won't go down the cliche um, political, the government's doing everything wrong because the government can't win. I feel bad for the government. I feel bad for any government because back to the clickbait media, it's very easy to say everyone's doing a bad job and everyone gets excited about that. They're, they're doing their best, whichever government, Labour, Conservative, they would all get absolutely slammed. I just think a lot more could be done. And I think we could grow businesses that aren't just service-based businesses in the UK. If you want an anecdote, I could give an anecdote of, you know, a business that I once tried to set up when I was involved in the recycling game and sustainability. And I recognized that there was a huge opportunity for um, developing a business which would take household waste, which is going to be buried in the ground, and you can pay a tax of around 90 pounds to bury it in the ground. And I wanted to build a, um, a plant that would recycle that because I had all these great customers in South Korea and Malaysia and in India and in Pakistan. And I wanted to take out all the plastics and all the bits of metals and all the, the films and all sorts of stuff like that. I got really excited about this business idea and I traveled and I met the clients and I I found that and some technology is fantastic. We could run the waste over a, a conveyor belt. We now have optical sorting machines, which use optical fibers to, to analyze whether it's a metal or plastic, what type of plastic, is it PET, is it um, PVC? And then they use air jets to fire off all of these different things off a production line into a hopper, lots of hoppers. Megatech, awesome. I want to build one of these systems in the UK. Okay, sir, I went for consultancy advice. So what you need to do is first you need to go and take a site. Okay, you can do that. It'll take you about a year to get planning permission on the site to do and build the factory that you want to build. Okay, no chance for expediting that since this is recycling and sustainability? Nope. Once you've got planning permission to, to build your site, then you can go to the environment agency and the environment agency will then do a full audit on what it is you want to do. Okay, well, it's recycling. So obviously there is, you know, the environment agency are gonna be super pleased about a young budding entrepreneur coming in and going to start recycling waste that was originally buried in the ground. But oh no, they've got a lot of red tape and bureaucracy to get through. They need the floor to be made out of concrete. They need drainage and sewers to be put in place. They need um, special fencing to make sure if there's any fires and, and, and all very valid things. I don't disagree with what their, um, what their regulations dictate. Okay, so how long will that take? That'll take another year, sir. Oh, okay. So when I take my site, do I buy it or do I rent it? Well, if I buy it, that's gonna cost a mill or two. 
and then I don't get to do anything on it for the first year, and it's not guaranteed that I get the council planning permission, then I have to have the environment agency, and they'll take another year, and it's not guaranteed that I'll get the permissions from the environment agency. Okay, so I rent a site instead of buying, then I rent a site, and I have to pay rent for two years before I'd get any permissions. It didn't take long to realize that that's just not going to be a viable business idea. And the best bit is, if you didn't buy the site because you didn't have the money to, to actually physically pay for it and not do anything on it for two years, then you rented it, and then you got all the permissions, and then the landowner was in a position where they could say, we would like to terminate our agreement, and thank you very much for getting all the permissions to run this business on our site. Now that is a real life example of a little young budding mid 20 year old entrepreneur with a vision. And all that told me was the UK is very difficult to do industrial type business in. So now we're settled with financial institutions and fintechs and applications, so on and so forth, which is great. But I think that's a shame. And if you compare ourselves to places, countries like America, and then obviously China and India who have grown tremendously, you can then see how the UK is very different to that. You know, in India, you could grow one of those businesses, set the whole thing up in three to six months. Now, I would argue that they don't have the right level of environmental controls in place. I'm a passionate believer in that sort of thing. But I'll remind you, Josh, the consequence of me not running that facility was that I can still pay tax to bury it in the ground. So instead of recycling it, let's just bury it. And I think that gives a really interesting mindset as to the realities of what doing business in the UK is like. So no wonder we have insurance companies, banks, financial institutions based here to make their investments. And that seems to be an awful lot of what the UK, well, that's the main business in the UK economy. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, again, kind of sticking along that bureaucracy and bureaucratic red tape and everything, There's there's been a lot of criticism of of the London Stock Exchange. Um, And, you know, there's a number of really large companies that have been delisting recently. Um, You know, obviously for yourself, you know, I don't know if kind of, you know, looking at listing is something in in OCI's growth plans in the future. But, you know, how do you, as as far as your viewpoint, how do you kind of view that situation? And, and, you know, I I guess that the long-term goal for, for the business, is it to list or are you looking at just, Taking over the world one step uh, Taking over the world is a long way to go. We're doing okay so far, but yeah, this business will be here in 30, 40 years' time. That's my goal. Um, even Jeff Bezos says Amazon won't be here forever, you know, and I find that really interesting. Um, do I want to list it? I have no immediate um, requirements for an influx of wealth. I think a lot of people grow businesses and then it's kind of back to that seed investment and that raising funds kind of thing. I think a lot of people like to just raise money to have money in their account and forget about what business is about. Would OCI sell? Hell no. Like I will always run OCI until, I don't know, the foreseeable future. I don't want to say until the day I die. Maybe that's a bit morbid. Um, But what I would do is sell a portion of the business 
to a like a, a large institutional investor, so like a BlackRock or a Sequoia or Blackstone, who has a portfolio of clients. And it wouldn't be to make money, it might be some nominal amount. What OCI would then do is cross, and it has to be a two-way street. So it's not that they invest money in us, so we can bank a load of cash in, but that's just not required on our side, no need. The benefit of that would be that we could cross-pollinate and do a two-way street. So OCI could provide its quite unique and groundbreaking ability to grow unicorns in their portfolio. Look for these specific companies where OCI can get in. We can see how we can develop their supply chain. We can pay suppliers for them. We can stimulate sales by developing um, relationships with buyers in a better place. And, and we, we've done this numerous times before. You know, I've taken companies from a zero, um, a zero turnover company, like engineer leaves a company and establishes the business on day one. By day 365, whilst working with OCI, he's done 200 million turnover, which is one of our smaller ones. And um, you know, another organization, 35 mil turnover. Um, their competitors were Google and Amazon with what they sell. Um, it's an electronic product. And, and we took them up to a 350 million turnover in nine months. And that's by structuring their supply chain, relieving constraints, and making business possible for them. So what I would love to do, when I have the time, is get into deep conversations with those big institutional investors on a different front, because we deal with them on a day-to-day -day basis, but, but get on from a, let's analyze your portfolio. Because hey, they'd love to see an OCI come in and say, we took company one, nine, and 228, and 5X their revenue in you know, X years time. That would obviously do, do great things for their, their, their business. And that's the only reason I would sell. Otherwise, there's not really any requirement to. We've always been an organic profiteering company. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, again, all the stuff that you've spoken about throughout this whole conversation is just incredible achievements, frankly. And I mean, you know, is has there been a moment where you just went like, wow, this is this is my life. This is what I've managed to achieve. Is there, is there a moment that you can think of that really sticks out that just goes like, this is something special we're doing here. I'd love to say yes to that, but the honest answer, the honest answer is no, because we can always do bigger and better. We can always be more successful. And I think this is one of the fundamental principles of an entrepreneur. It's, a, it's a, you know, we won the, and we won actually, uh, we, we won the scale of awards, right? And um, <laughs> the next day, I'm having internal meetings about how we can grow the business faster and do more deals and be more successful and, and not actually, and this is wrong, I don't advocate this, but not actually sitting there and basking in the glory of, hey, we just won this great award, we've been recognized again, and that's fantastic. It's sort of always onwards and upwards. The aspirations from my perspective are more along the lines of, yeah, how can we look like a, 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 a large corporate with offices in you know more cities with this huge network of um uh, of employees and um, and clients worldwide uh, and so yeah it, it's like kind of a, a long long mountain to climb so um, i don't i should take more time to 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 maybe think about the success we've had and a lot of people tell me to do that but i can't help it
Um, it's now time for a very special segment. We've teamed up with the Jill Dando News Centre to give you the good news postcards. Oliver, today your question comes from Leo, age 12. Hi, I'm Leo from Jill Dando News Centre at World Community School Academy. My question is, what was your dream job when you were younger? Hey Leo, lovely to meet you and that's an awesome question. My dream job when I was younger, Leo, that, that's a hard one. You know, I think when you're a kid, you're, you're brought up to think that you have to have this ambition, this idea, I must be a doctor, I must be a lawyer, I, I must be a pharmacist or anything. That, and I think that's a lot of pressure to put on children. How do you know when you've not experienced the entire you know, world yet? You're at a young age. How do you know what you want to be when you're older? I've got friends that I was at school with and, and, and they went through this process and some of them are now doctors, lawyers, accountants, pharmacists, so on and so forth. They knew and that's great for them. But I didn't know. I knew what I was interested in and I kind of followed that. And so how I'd actually answer your question, Leo, is not put too much pressure on yourself. Continue with your journey in life. Most importantly, enjoy it and not stress about worrying what your career is going to look like. But perhaps let your career come to you. It might be that you go to school, go to university, come out, get a job. You might not like that job, but it might help you understand what you might like about a potential job. And then you can build on that. But don't let the pressure of school and hearing classmates say, well, I'm going to do this when I'm older. And I'm poorly, I don't understand what I want to do. Don't let that weigh you down. Continue your journey, do your thing, and life will fall together very nicely for you, I'm sure. That is a brilliant answer to a fantastic question. So thank you very much, Oliver. Uh, last question for you. Um, what to you makes a great business leader? I, I think a good business leader, I can, I can only speak for myself, but I'm, I'm a business leader. I won't comment whether I'm good, great, or indifferent, or whatever. I think a good business leader is someone who listens to their team. So, so how can I answer that differently? A quirk about myself is that I'm a sponge. Pet hate of mine is talking to somebody that only talks about themselves. I really don't like that, but it kind of suits me quite well because I like to ask questions about people. Although on this podcast, obviously, I've had a lot of questions asked about me, which isn't really the usual way it works. But um, I love to learn from people, okay? So everyone's got something to offer. Everyone's got something to give. And I find people and humans really interesting. So what would make a good leader? Well, perhaps it would be someone who, who is prepared to listen, to learn, to absorb, and make their own decisions based on a wide range of information. And then if they can manage their team, in a democratic rather than an autocratic way, then you can actually learn from your team as well. And you can listen to what their opinions might be and you can form your decision based on your team's decisions. And then what's super cool about that, which is a technique we actually use at OCI, by involving the team in making the decision, it means the team has made the decision themselves and so they're proactive about the decision that the company's made. And so that's sort of the mindset as a leader that I have. And, um, and I think that that works quite well. 
No, that's that's, a, that's absolutely brilliant uh, bit of advice there for sure. I love that. Um, and yeah, I mean, we've chatted about OCI so much and, you know, we, we really appreciate your time. And where can people kind of find out a little bit more information about OCI and, and follow your own journey? And of course, you, you can check us out online. It's OCI Limited. Um, you know, the company is oci-group.co.uk. Um, I think we've got a pretty decent um, um, LinkedIn um continuous posts and white papers and, and topics and articles which are sort of focused around global economics and the supply chain and how things are, are shifting we're really passionate about sharing that information so so people can make informed decisions that don't necessarily know um, and, and they're probably the best way to reach us i'm always reachable as well i think my email address is even listed on my linkedin or you can shoot me up a message more than happy to connect with people whether people want to learn more whether they want some mentoring whether they want to mentor me i've got a lot to learn in my life i'm a, you know i'm 34 years old i've got an awful long way to go in my career and um, and i really believe in, in sharing um, sharing my information but also you know learning from other people as well so um, i think social media is, is clearly the way forward to communicate with people and, and oci is fairly active on those channels Oh,